This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. Greetings and welcome to Sheer Listening Pleasure with your host, me, Neil Shear. I'm a recently retired academic dermatologist. Over my career, I have been inspired by my many colleagues and trainees who are dedicated to helping people with major life-altering skin conditions. Some people don't recognize dermatology as a real medical specialty. Oh, but is it ever? From the many stories of patients and providers, I hope we can inspire others. We will travel across Canada to delve into inspirational contributions to improve the quality of life of others. Very few specialties have as many diverse diseases as dermatology. So without any gory photos, just friendly chats, we will take you into a world behind the scenes, a world of caring, compassion, and inspiration. And of course, I want to give a very special shout out to our sponsors supporting the podcast from Amgen Canada. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. With knowledge beyond measure, discussions you will treasure. It's sheer, sheer, sheer listening pleasure. I was really looking forward to it, not only because you're a hero of mine and I respect you so much, but also because I really wanted to know about those steps. So what do you want to start with? Can we start with how you ended up in dermatology? Yeah, sure. It was a long pathway for me because when I started off, I mean, I graduated high school and went to uh, University of Waterloo for computer science because I was always a uh, computer guy, first and foremost. Spent a lot of time playing games and making things. And so initially it just seemed like the natural fit to go off and do more computer stuff. So I spent four years doing that. And then after graduating, you go and you work as a computer guy, basically. And really it's like I spent a lot of time working in a cubicle. So cubicle for a tech company, it's really, so everything's really gray, first of all, because that's the uh, culture of uh, engineering and software engineering is everything's, uh, you're working in a gray box. And this predates, obviously, a lot of the virtual work and the work from home uh, culture that has, you know, changed the industry significantly in the last couple of years for obvious reasons. But while I was doing it, I was just, uh, I was just uh, you know what, I wasn't sure that I wanted to just keep working in a, a cubicle with um just computers for the next you know, 40 years, essentially, at that point. So I had to sit back and say to myself, I'm like, well, what else can I do? And the answer is, it's like, well, you spent most of your degree building things, not paying too much attention to grades. It's like, so right now, not too much. It's like, but, and I think sometimes you step back and you look at your life and you go, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and you don't know exactly what you can accomplish if you challenge yourself. So I said, well, what if I did challenge myself? I'm going to go back and do a second degree. I'm like, if my grades aren't good enough to do anything at this point, at that point, I wasn't even, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe medicine. I mean, that'd be great. I'm not even sure if I can do it yet. You know, my parents were, uh, uh, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a teacher. So I didn't really have any uh, doctors in the family or any kind of active role model to look up to, to say, hey, yeah, you can do this. I just had to take it and say, well, Maybe I can. I'm not sure yet. I guess I have to see if I can actually get 
good grades first. So that's what led me from kind of the East to my first foray into uh, where I am now in uh, British Columbia. Went to Simon Fraser and just sucked myself into you know, learning, really learning and a degree and seeing exactly, you know, what kinds of grades I could get, what could I learn from that and what kind of branching out I could do. Because I always knew I still like computers. I wanted to take that with me wherever I went. I'm like, but there's more than just, you know, doing computers for the sake of doing computers or doing it for finances or something like that. I wanted to have something a little bit more uh, meaningful and with a connection to, you know, the wider world. So I did my degree in biochemistry at Simon Fraser, and I finally got enough good grades to apply to medical school, which was a challenge into itself because in, in a lot of the provinces, I wasn't considered a, a citizen. So I had to meet bars that I wasn't able to meet because they really wanted to take all the grades that I had and uh, pool them all together, which didn't work out so well for me, unfortunately. It's like the schools that I got interviews were the schools where they said, okay, well, you know what, we'll take your best years. And thankfully, I said, well, my best years are pretty good. So if we're going to do that, then I actually have a fighting chance here. And so that turned out to be uh, Western University, which was then uh, University of Western Ontario. And so that was the the one place where I actually uh, nailed the interview. And so all up to this point, I said, it was just a, let's see what happens. You know what? Again, you know, no role model, no real guide. It's just, it's just is this something that I can do? And let's see if this is a fit and see if I can get in. And I got in. So I got into medical school. I was like, wow, this is, this is great. You know, I have a chance to do something impactful. And again, it's like, hopefully I can carry everything that brought me here along with it. Because it took a lot of years to get from, you know, after high school to even just starting medical school. I think it was, uh, it was 29 when I uh, started medical school. So you know, starting a little bit later than, than some of my peers was also a little bit intimidating but enjoyed it. And then, you know, it's like uh, everything you do in life, it's like people will go, well, what's the next step? What's next? What's next? So, okay, you got into medical school. Congratulations. What's next? What do you want to do? It's like, what do you want to do with your life now? And so looking into, you know, lots of different stuff. And I think it was in second year that I actually I met you. And that's what put me on my path to dermatology. I don't know if you remember, but I showed up uh, just a uh, Medical student in your office. I think it was my old dermatologist who put us in touch, actually. It was. It was Kathy Fialka. Yeah, yeah. So I go in and I'm, of course, again, it's like the, uh, looking back, it's like you feel very naive about the whole system when you, you know, have no exposure to it whatsoever. So you go in and you're like, hey, you know, I want to do research. Not knowing what research means or is or, you know, people do research for their entire life. But as a medical student, you hear, I want to do research. You have to do research in order to accomplish anything. You have to you have to do this thing. And of course, it's like the the true impact of that is well, you have to try to demonstrate an interest, and you're trying to see if it's a you know a specialty is a fit for you, and you're trying to meet people within the specialty. It's like that's what they really mean by doing research, of course. But unless somebody tells you that, you don't actually know that. Uh, so I remember showing up in your office and going, "Yeah, I'd love to do some research." By the way, I do all this computer stuff. And I remember you going, you know what, that's a, I don't necessarily need you to do research. It's like, I have other people to do research for me. It's like, but why don't you come and hang out and we'll, we'll see where this takes us. And so. I'm glad you remember it that way. Cause uh, that's not the way I, I remember it. Uh, I was pretty mean and uh, I didn't mean to be mean. Well, I didn't mean to be mean, 
but you came to the office at Women's College and we sat down and I said, well, thank you for coming in. That was, but that was a big step for you to come in. There was, you know, you're coming in into nothing. You don't know what's going to happen. And I said, I'm intrigued by your years working as a programmer. So what did you do? And you really did programming. And so I told you that we didn't need people doing research. But on the other hand, uh, we would uh, love to have you work with us for the summer. And you did. And it was the kind of thing you say, you know, Trevor, we could really use something that does this. And you come back five minutes later, and I assume you have a question. And you go, oh, no, no, you, you've already written the program. So it was that kind of eye-opening for me to see, you know, if somebody knows how to do something, whether it's, whether it's surgery or dermatology or programming, if you know how to do it, it doesn't take long to do it. You just sit down and do it. And then you got into all the you know, politics with all of the stuff at the hospital and all their still ongoing. The best safety is to make sure that nobody can actually get their work done. And so, you know, you had to deal with all of these things and whether servers were in the US or Canada and all kinds of issues that we had to face over the years. But I mean, it's all part of what's going on. So, you know, you moved on to that and then you did your dermatology and were busy and had a busy practice academically and clinically. And had all that stuff, and then they moved to British Columbia. I know. It's been a really interesting uh, move. It's similar in a way. It's like, you know, I've done all this stuff before, and uh, when I move out here, it's a totally different spectrum in terms of what's available. So to back up, I did a lot of virtual care. When I graduated, I said, you know, we're underutilizing virtual care. And I probably spent about, let's see, graduating in 2016. So, yeah, I spent three years almost banging my head against the wall in terms of getting people to accept that, you know, there are ways of doing this that, you know, don't necessarily compromise good medicine. It's like, no, you can't do everything with virtual care. It's like, but there are some things that you can do uh, that can be very impactful for patients and very impactful for providers, which is a big thing that I think is missed with a lot of virtual care is that you know, as a specialist, you have these relationships with primary care providers, the, the family doctors, the nurse practitioners, whether in urban or rural settings. And it really is that all it is, is somebody sending you faxes on the other side of a fax line. You don't necessarily get to build much of a comprehensive relationship with these providers who are sending you referrals. And really, the whole point is them asking you for help because they have questions. They didn't spend five years studying dermatology like we did. And it's interesting because in virtual care, you feel like you're talking more to the physicians who are asking you, you know, directly for this help. And so you're building these relationships that are, you know, valuable and impactful and interesting to see how the struggles that primary care have in getting their patients dermatology access to begin with, but you're kind of building a relationship with them. You know, you get to educate a little bit along the way. It's then everywhere that I've done this service, it's like they've seemed very happy with it. And even after moving from Ontario to British Columbia, you know, most of the practitioners, they're like, well, yeah, but you're just, you're just moving across the country. It's like, it's not like you're leaving, you know, forever. So you can keep doing the virtual care, right? And I said, sure, why not? And so it's just a very uh, interesting experience from that perspective. So out here, there is very little in terms of existing virtual care infrastructure. Mm -hmm. In Ontario, we have things like the Ontario Telemedicine Network. Out here, it's a little bit more uh, fragmented. And some folks from UBC and other places have built, you know, really interesting pieces of the puzzle. So honestly, I'm in the process of uh, hoping to 
build and see what we can build out here in terms of that. That's really interesting. So you're saying that, are you talking regionally like an interior BC versus say Vancouver or in terms of the things that are not quite as networked as they ideally would be? Yeah, so it's a similar problem to Ontario in a way in that uh, you remember from Sunnybrook, we would get consultations from everywhere, everywhere in the province, because let's face it, most hospitals don't have an active dermatology service that they can rely on. So the problem is similar here in that the uh, Vancouver and the Lower Mainland accept you know, uh, referrals and help from places in their particular basin but they don't have the resources and they don't have the dermatologists to serve the entire province. So my area right now in Kamloops is interior health. And right now we have, I think, three and a half dermatologists, roughly, who are expected to serve, you know, roughly the 500,000 people in the catchment basin for interior health. So, I mean, if you just open a fax line and start accepting referrals, it's, you know, that the capacity is going to be over very, very quickly. But again, it's like if we can build some kind of comprehensive virtual strategy in order to you know, triage and assess patients faster so that they don't have to travel you know, 300 kilometers to be told that they don't have a skin cancer or that you can you know, examine a picture appropriately with you know, good quality and the right technology and look at it and say, well, actually, you do have a skin cancer, so that needs to be taken out. And you can see that within the a week or two weeks instead of waiting the six months to, I just opened a month ago and my wait list is now up to four months. And I know that the dermatologists in Kelowna, their wait times are nine to 12 months. So ideally, uh, we have some other better system of getting through the volume of patients that needs to be gotten through. You know, I know talking to trainees of ours who've gone into places where there was really maybe not as much derm as there should be, and the wait times were so long. And so one example is, you know, they saw somebody who was sent in for bad eczema, but it was really skin lymphoma. And, you know, you hear these over and over again. They're the same sort of themes, you know, of things that were missed because they couldn't see anybody. And yet for a lot of the virtual care in Ontario, we don't actually see people we're talking to them, which is great for people who've been established. They love not having to spend three hours coming to downtown Toronto and looking for parking for two hours and all that stuff. So they love that. So when you're talking about virtual yourself, and I think you always wanted to see people first, and then you would do it virtually. But now are you able to do it all virtually? Can you see things that are clear enough to make you comfortable or what works for you? Well, right now, most of the virtual care that I focused on is really, you could categorize it as peer-to-peer support, which is, you know, a practitioner has a patient with a dermatology issue. They take some photos, they send the story to you, and you give some basic advice so that they can hit the ground running and, you know, manage it themselves. And again, it's a very efficient method of practice. It gets patients faster care and faster advice from a dermatologist. It's not perfect, because you're reliant on good quality pictures, which can be sometimes very tough to come by. And you're also reliant on the ability of the primary care practitioner to manage it, which like you said, it's like if it's a skin lymphoma, then the correct action is probably to have the primary care practitioner send them to 
one of us so that we can have a lengthier discussion. And that can happen as part of a virtual platform that can happen as, you know what, there's sometimes there's no substitute. You just have to come down and, and see us. And so again, right now it's like, that's the model that we're, we're working towards. It's like right now we, we have to, you know, build things in the appropriate way. It's like you said, there's server, there's uh, data considerations, there's privacy considerations. The benefit is that I've had to build this multiple times now in my career at multiple hospitals. So I can go in and say, well, listen, I'm pretty sure I know what privacy will be okay with and what legal will be okay with. And you have to strike a balance because like the perfect solution for, you know, the tech privacy legal data side is going to be effectively unworkable from a physician and a usability point of view, because you can't have somebody needing to log in, you know, to five different services and authenticate eight different times in order to answer a simple clinical question, such as, you know, I have a patient in eMERGE who has a terrible skin rash. Can I just put them on prednisone and see them in clinic? You know, it's a quick triage question that you can answer and get these patients out of eMERGE. It's like, but you can't have practitioners or dermatologists spending 20 to 30 minutes in order to, you know, circumvent the technology just to answer the question. It's like, but at the same time, you also can't just rely on, you know, sending text messages over the plain open air with data insecure. And finding that balance has been my entire career to date. <laughs> That's interesting because all the, the things we know about medicine, as you go through all the years of training, internal medicine and all the bits and pieces that you've done on the medical side, and you realize people who don't know anything about dermatology fill that gap in their brain with nonsense and think they know something about it because their teachers in internal medicine or general medicine, whatever, didn't teach it properly. They say, oh no, you just do this. You know, this always works. And if it doesn't, then you call a dermatologist, whatever. But over time, you evolve in your career with that kind of insights where you can see all these things that could be fixed and need to be fixed. And people do it in different ways. You're in a different edge. You're doing the real tech approach also to say, well, here are the medical complexities and the importance of dermatology, but here's how we can make this better for the whole system, keep people healthier, faster, and hopefully save some resource money, et cetera, over time and, and make it work. But I can't think of anyone who can do sort of what you do. Now you could say that about everybody who's got their own skill set, but this is really unique and, and obviously very impactful. And the fact you've been in two major centers, if you think of Ontario and British Columbia, I think is quite neat. And just one thing I want to add to it too, that for people listening to this, that Trevor's won many teaching awards at the University of Toronto, chosen by the residents as uh, being a best teacher. And so it isn't just this, you know, tech guy or somebody who happens to be good at interacting with patients and prescribers, but also works with trainees. So really multifaceted, which is hard to do all that stuff, or let's just say it's rare. Let's say it's rare. But as you explained your background, you know, it's, you sort of see how it could come to that. But the thing is the world has changed too. It's not like you can look back and say, yeah, but we did, here's what we did 15 years ago. It's the same now. Well, no, it isn't. And it isn't just topical steroids for everything. And it, 
it's access to therapies too. New therapies come out and each province has their own rules. But, you know, you say, well, wait a sec, when I was in Ontario, I could get this drug and get people better, but I can't in British Columbia. What's going on? Oh, no, you have to jump through these hoops. Have you run into any of that already? Oh, yeah, already, already. Um, there are like there are certain medications, say, for uh, severe eczema that were on the provincial formulary in Ontario, but have been rejected from the provincial formulary in British Columbia. So it's a transition. The demands are slightly different. You know, the the bureaucratic paperwork that you have to accomplish in order to prove to somebody that a patient needs a medication is slightly different, in my opinion. Maybe it's just because I'm new, but it seems a little bit harder in British Columbia than it did in Ontario. And so I'm honestly just glad that I had those six years of experience and contacts and good relationships to build on so that when I'm asking, you know, I have this patient that really needs this medication, can we possibly get it from the companies themselves? Then I have had better luck with that so far than with the provincial system. But it's a huge learning curve just in terms of the paperwork difference. Fair enough. And in the teaching aspect, are you were there trainees coming to Kamloops or now that you're there, you're starting to be able to build a, a bit of a teaching program as well for family medicine trainees or dermatology or whatever? Yeah. So that was one of the selling points is that Kamloops has a uh, branch of University of British Columbia Medical School. So we have, I think, eight full-time uh, medical student trainees who who stay in Kamloops the whole time around. And obviously we have lots of uh, family medicine residents and you know other uh, non-dermatology residents who come through. So that was one of the selling points for me that, okay, I can move here and I can still teach. And like, that's fantastic. So I was very happy to do that. I just had our first medical student rotate through last week. And it was uh, great to start that up again. Well, that's really good. That's really nice. And when the family trainees, when they say there, is it like for two years or? I think the family medicine program is still, I know that they're looking at transitioning it to a, to a three-year program, but the UBC model is generally picking a site and you're staying there. So family medicine trainees will do their full two years here in Kamloops, similar to the medical students who will spend their entire medical student year here and have a combination of in-person teaching and in-person clinics and virtual teaching. One of the scariest areas, I think, for people who take a academic or not medical dermatology, you know, perspective where you're really looking at diseases, it's not cosmetic, you're not doing that, you're doing just really high-end medical stuff. If you know enough, you'd be terrified by how fast pediatric dermatology is changing and how quickly what you know is way out of date, even on simple things. And there's too much for us to learn. But do you have good access to P-derm there from where you're sitting? Well, fortunately, I still have good access to all of my P-derm colleagues back in Ontario. And I'm learning the spectrum here, learning who is accepting patients and just getting to know it. It's like, because I am the only, let's say, uh, publicly accessible uh, dermatologist in Kamloops right now. I have a good relationship with one of the other uh, dermatologists in Kelowna, uh, Dr. Diane Burroughs, who was a colleague of ours. And so she's been really helpful in getting me to understand kind of the spectrum of how to practice in uh, British Columbia. 
And beyond that, I uh, went to the meeting of our dermatologists about a month ago in uh, Vancouver. And so got to know some of our colleagues there. So it's interesting how how every place seems a little bit, you know, we're all practicing dermatology. Every place does it a little bit differently. Every place has its own feel and its own vibe and feels like its own separate community, which is quite cool. It is funny, though, and I agree with you completely. But also, you can get five people in a room, show them an issue. They all say they do it differently. And then when you ask them what they really do, they do exactly the same thing. All of them do the same thing. But they believe they see it differently. They see the cup half empty or half full. And they can fight about that and disagree. And then when you say, well, show me what you really do. Oh, well, first I do this, this, and this. Is that because the province is telling you to do that? No, that's the best way to do it. And there's usually a lot more agreement than I think we sometimes give ourselves credit for because people like to think they've they found the secret to it and want to share it that way. But that's good. And I know the first time I went to UBC to meet the group, I was surprised at how few people were actually in dermatology there. But of course, you know, it's spread out, but still it's very uh, diluted. But I think that screams out for a technological solution. I think when you have that sort of disparity and diversity across the province, it really is something and it should be BC focused. I mean, that makes sense. And that I think is where a good proportion of this is heading. Because right now, you know, from the tech side, you'll get a lot of companies and a lot of people saying, well, but you can do virtual from anywhere to anywhere. But, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, depending on the technology, depending on the practitioner, and this is something that the Canadian Dermatology Association issued like a position paper on all the way back in 2014, which is, you know, it's very easy to, you know, insert yourself virtually into a community and then start causing more problems that you didn't intend to. You know, for example, you know, you see a patient there and they send you a really poor quality image of a lesion. You go, well, that could be anything. I guess you should see somebody about that. And then what's the patient supposed to do with that? The, either the patient has to go and you know, find someone themselves. If you've done you know, an ineffective virtual consultation to a primary care practitioner and your advice is, well, I'm not sure. Good luck with that. You, they should probably see a dermatologist in primary care who says, well, the reason I, we got in contact with you is because we don't have dermatology. You're effectively adding burden to the system, like a tremendous amount of burden to the system that needs to continue to be managed if it's not good or appropriate advice. So I think where a lot of this is going to head is hub and spoke models, where it's like a little bit more integration with patient care pathways so that, you know, you are a dermatologist giving virtual advice to a community, but you're also part of that community. And so you're also, you know, seeing the patients that you're helping to co-manage virtually. It's not just a run in and hit and run away. It's like it's all part of a broader pathway of care. Well, we do have colleagues you know, in Western Canada, I'll say, especially where there's some very, I think, coming to really look like they have a great future and successful thing. So, you know, whether it's an app on the phone that takes a good picture or whatever. So, you know, I expect these algorithms that'll help everybody get seen and properly seen. You know, that's the other thing. We don't have it on the other end. What I mean is 
everybody can use it, say an app or something, but you know, if they're looking for a cosmetic dermatologist, a pediatric dermatologist, or a medical dermatologist, or a cancer-related dermatologist, uh, they may need a whole nif- different environment to work in. I can't believe, of course, I've been wrong a million times, but I can't believe every it's going to be one way. You know, there's going to be some sort of way that everybody can do this that will work in, in their world. Because we haven't really defined our worlds. We just talk about, oh, dermatology. But it's not like that. We all practice in different worlds. Yeah. And the virtual care and dermatology is the same thing. It's like right now, it, when you say virtual care, even I did it at the beginning. I said virtual care, meaning peer-to-peer support. Other people will say virtual care and mean you know app-based advice. Other people will say it and mean, well, what we meant is video conferencing which is, you know, in my opinion, almost impossible for diagnosis. You can't see anything over a video camera over the internet. So we've been doing the broad approach, and now things are going to get more and more targeted in terms of very specific use cases and the right technology for the right fit. So let's then move into focusing on AI, artificial intelligence. And all intelligence is artificial, I guess, but uh, AI itself, in, in terms of us more specifically or what we see coming, What's your perspective on that? Not about, I don't know, whatever you think, whatever you want to say, good, bad, it's going to change everything, or it's going to be used against us, or who knows what. What do you see? Well, I remember coming into your office in 2017. Again, another incident of me coming into your office in 2017 with the Nature paper, I think that was published in 2016, that said, you know, computers can diagnose, you know, melanoma at the same sensitivity, roughly, as a dermatologist can. And this was all the way back in, Again, 2016, 2017, came to our office and said, we need to do something about this. And it's like, I'm not sure what, but number one, the tech side of me goes, this is absolutely fascinating. And I just want to get my hands on the technology so that we can see what we can do with it. And then the other part is, is obviously, you know, you, you approach it with caution. You're like, well, but I know some of these people in tech and they don't understand the, the subtlety and the importance of how we do things slowly and carefully and with thought and care and understanding how things are going to impact patients and impact patient pathways. So looking back, say, over the past five years, I think there was a big push to say, well, let's just throw everything we have at these computers and see what comes out of it. And there were some interesting results right? There were some big companies that came up with, you know, apps to point at your skin and try and diagnose something. And the truth is, is that in the last couple of years, I think that the big approach has shown that it's not going to be effective in the long term, because there are so many small details about everything that we do, even down to the diagnosis level, that you can't just throw 300, 500 conditions at a computer and say, learn the difference between them because it's not a approach that lends itself well to actual patient care. So I think what's going to happen in the next five years is that people are going to take that technology and say, let's answer smaller questions that are a bit more appropriate and a bit easier to fit into existing medical pathways. You know, essentially, when you look at the technology, it's Anything that you can look at as a dermatologist and make a decision about, provided that it's, you know, consistent and, you know, replicatable. It's like you said, when you get dermatologists in a room to decide on what they're going to do, most of them are going to decide roughly to do the same thing. 
if you have the all the information that they're using in order to decide that, then technically you can get a computer to surrogate that decision. Uh, something as simple as, as, okay, we have something, we know it's a benign skin rash, or let's say we're going to assume it's a benign skin rash, and I just want to know what strength of steroid to use on it so that we're not using you know, a super potent steroid on something that doesn't need it, or so that we're using an appropriate strength of steroid so that it's actually going to go away. And so I think like small decisions like that, you know, within a very confined context that can be proven in the literature is going to be where AI is going to go next in those, those kinds of tiny decision supports. That's very thoughtful and very workable. You know, I've been doing a lot of data monitoring committee stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, you know, clinical trials. And then there's an unblinded group that can look at the clinical trial results and speak up and say, well, we're worried about something, but we get a lot of data and all that. And there's other stuff. And drug safety has always been a big part of my career in dermatology. So I finally got it down. There were so many assumptions people made, non-dermatologists or clinicians or investigators, whatever. I said, look, there's only two stages, diagnosis and causality. And it has to be in that order because people start talking about causality before they even know what the diagnosis is, as if there's one skin disease and it fits that way. And so at the end of meetings, even I go, what did I tell you? And, and they don't always get it right. They say, I'm sorry, I can't say it enough. Diagnosis and causality. And then you can worry about treatment and then you can worry about investigations and everything. But you know, did a drug cause it? Or was it something that just, they caught something from a neighbor or they are genetic predisposition, but I had to keep it down to two words, diagnosis, causality. And I can, every time it comes up, which is on a regular basis, I just said, look, I'm gonna keep it simple. And then we can, you know, separate all these differences. But then once you get into the differences, of course, you've got all these complications. Things start to be not quite the same. There's overlap diseases and, you know, you have one skin disease. No, you might have six or seven and three are overlapping and two are for something else and whatever. But as you said, you know, you have to start off with a simple a simple model and, and understand it. And I think that it impacts on drug development and what the drug approvals are. They may approve it for psoriasis, but maybe it should be used for some pustular disease or, you know, there's all kinds of things that will have to come out. And dermatology has to have a voice in all of these. And you never know who you're talking to when you're talking to ministry people. Is their job just to say no? And the person who says yes doesn't actually exist? Or, you know, is it some other platform that you don't understand. But, you know, I think your voice is going to be very powerful for not only the province or even locally there, but I mean, for, for the country to be able to make sure that with all these different payers and, you know, they say, well, Canada drugs are covered. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> the doctor's covered most of the time and the drugs may not be covered or you may not have access to things. So it's not necessarily, you know, a perfect scenario. And it'd be nice to have voices like yours at all these levels saying, well, but here's how we can manage that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are wrong. And, you know, even when you see people who are not necessarily patients, but yet, you know, they they actually work in the access area and then they get sick and say, well, you're going to have to go through five different drugs before I can give you the drug that actually makes you better. But there you go. That's the way it goes. And sometimes it, it works out. There have been other models that have worked out well, I think, for some of the say, oral therapies where if they're not working, you know, but we'll give you those first before we do injections and all kinds of things can work out as long as we collect the data. You know, that would be nice. That's 
something. I, I guess maybe we'll end on that, just on the idea. Is big data a big help or or not? I mean, do you need to see what people got drug X in British Columbia and how many of them got better before you can make a decision? Or is it just cumbersome and not worthwhile? Big data will be really helpful once we're sure that the data going into big data is correct and appropriate, because that has been the problem with medical data forever. People will call different conditions different things. People will call different drugs different things. And most of what's going on in big data right now is just trying to take the data that we have and make some of some kind of coherent sense with it in terms of can we reliably assume that when somebody calls it, you know, Stephen Johnson syndrome, well, but what if it's erythema multiforme major? Well, we only have one code for erythema multiforme, so we're going to mix up the minors and the majors and put them together. And so even just that, even just that is so difficult to sort out in most medical coding systems that I think it'll be really cool to see what comes out of big data once everybody starts coding everything the same. But even then, you're fighting back against human nature. Individual practitioners are going to code things differently. If somebody comes into your office and you look at it and you say, I'm sure this is a basal cell carcinoma that needs to be biopsied, and they biopsy it, but the patient never comes back. They get a phone call, so it never actually enters the system. Well, some practitioners are going to code that as, say, visit for biopsy. Some practitioners might code that as unknown skin lesion. Some people might code that as basal cell carcinoma. And so if you were just asking the question, how many people came in for basal cell carcinoma that we thought and got a biopsy, immediately you can't answer the question without understanding how individual practitioners are using the systems. So that's where big data has to go next, unfortunately. So very good. I think dermatology is very complicated. And I'm sure everybody's seen their specialty is once you get down to it. But it is very complicated. And, and the problem is, I don't think people generally, decision makers, et cetera, either want to hear about it or maybe incorrectly are very strongly believing that dermatology isn't that complicated. But it is. Until they experience it for themselves. And to go to meetings at Health Canada and Cadeth and talk to people who are making major decisions is very frustrating. That's the kindest word I could think of. But you go there and you think, why am I doing it? <laughs> <laughs> they're just looking at me and they think I'm a dog barking and I'm trying to tell them that the building's on fire, but it's just, it's just like, it just, you just think, well, I learned something there. And I know in very small meetings with, uh, in the provincial system where they said, well, here's what we're doing. We have data. And that's, well, what's your data? I said, well, we can't tell you. I said, well, I'm leaving then. It doesn't make any sense. And once they explain what their data is, you go, well, you've misunderstood that data. What do you mean? And here's why. It's like, oh, we didn't think of that. Well, that's why we're here. And yet you don't want to talk to us about it. You just want to tell us what decisions you made. How bureaucrats can make decisions about my dermatology patients, I don't know. And I understand they have stewardship that they have to follow, and that's important. So but so there's a lot to do, but it looks like it's a fun time. And, and seeing you is fun too. I'm so glad I got to see you. It's great. I'm so glad to, things are going okay. And yeah, no, it's great. They've been uh, really supportive here. They have great like quality improvement programs. So they're like, you want to build Teladerm? Great. You know, join this quality improvement initiative. 
We'll pay you for the time to set it up. We'll put resources, like get hospital IT and dyads involved. So it's been really well supported. So like I said, it's nice that I have all of the uh, experience that I have at building it before to know what's going to pass. You have a lot of tools in your toolkit and you know how to use them, which is, you know, both virtual and real. I mean, it's really, it's really important to be able to have that sort of credibility and understanding of what somebody who's not in your field is talking about and to be able to say, okay, well, let me put it your way in. And I'm sure there they feel it's rather than just saying, well, can't we do this? And you're going, oh, no, that's, you know, so for everybody, I think it's good. And it's very exciting. I think it's just very exciting about what the next, say, five years are going to bring in terms of what dermatology is, but also how much better our patients can be. And, you know, once you find a good discovery of something, we just sort of get a tsunami of patients coming in saying, I think I have that. Or there was a teenager who read something in the Globe and Mail once who came in to see me saying he had something. And I said, well, people at your age don't have that. But oh, oh yes, he did. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. He said to his parents, I have to go in and see a dermatologist. That's really impressive. But that just shows you. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Patients can often diagnose themselves. And sometimes it doesn't take much just to show them a picture off a computer and go, oh, yeah, that's what I have. Thank you. So anyways, diagnosis and causality. Trevor, thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time, but especially very appreciative of your openness and sharing all your skills. Oh, it's great. I, I hope we can do it again sometime and maybe in real life. Yeah, great. It's great to see you. If you enjoyed this episode of Sheer Listening Pleasure, please do share it with your friends and colleagues. On our next episode, Neil will chat with another guest from the world of dermatology. To subscribe, go to www.derm.city or find the SLP podcast at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or, really, wherever you get your podcasts. The producer is Jeremy Visser. Research for this episode came from Christella Teller-Ruiz, John Evans, and Kylie Rebenick. Support for this podcast comes from Amgen Canada. Amgen Canada serves dermatology patients throughout Canada by delivering vital medicines to them. In addition, Amgen contributes to developing new therapies, or new uses for existing medicines, in partnership with many of Canada's leading healthcare, academic, research, government, and patient organizations. Today, tens of thousands of Canadians use Amgen medicines every year. Learn more at www.amgen.ca. Send your comments to slp at chronicle.org. Until next time, be well.